This morning we are um, slightly changing around the preaching order because for some reason it snowed at the beginning of December and it slightly disrupted our plan. And I feel this passage I was meant to preach at the beginning of December, I really don't want us to miss um, because it's an ouch passage and therefore it's quite fun. It's quite difficult. Oh, I better get my prop. It might give you a clue as to what it's about. Um, And so... I wanted to come back to Matthew chapter 7 um, and really focus on this amazing piece of teaching that Jesus gave during his, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, this, this block of teaching we've been looking at in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You'll know we've talked about this being like Jesus' manifesto. He's saying, I'm coming as king, and this is what my kingdom is going to look like through these chapters. And he talks about the kind of people that get to inherit his kingdom, what life in his kingdom looks like. That it's not just a matter of laws. In fact, it's not really an issue of laws at all. It's to do with our hearts fundamentally and understanding who God is and who we are. And Jesus is explaining what life in his kingdom looks like. And we've seen all the way through, hopefully, that this is a totally upside-down kingdom to that of the world. The values, the attitudes, the ideas, the ways of treating one another is totally countercultural. Not just in some generations, in some cultures at some times in history, but in every generation, in every culture across the face of the earth, Jesus' message of his kingdom is totally countercultural. There is no culture that can say, well, we are that already. And so this morning, we're picking up on these amazing verses where Jesus, this is an ouch message, by the way, um, so... Can I encourage you to have open hearts and open ears to the Spirit? But this is good news. Going to read from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus said this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give to the dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to the pigs If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So in everything, you're going to jump down to verse 12 for a moment. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Father, we want to come to you as we have been this morning to glorify you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you it is living and powerful. We thank you it trains us in godliness. We thank you it cuts to the heart of our our hearts and it exposes them for what they are. And this morning we pray and ask that through your spirit that you might come and work on our hearts. We pray that you might cause our hearts to become like yours through your word this morning. We love you. We pray that you'll be glorified and magnified through these few moments, and we, but we do ask that, Holy Spirit, you would help us to open our ears and hearts, minds and lives to you speaking, to bringing this word alive to us. We pray this for your glory, Lord God, and we pray it for our joy and freedom. Amen. So this whole section in, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to through to 12, is about relationships in God's kingdom. Fundamentally, it is about relationships, how we relate to one another. Not just within the church, but also in this God's community in that sense, but also with people who aren't part of God's family. And verse 12 that we just read at the end really sums up this whole attitude that we should have, this whole way of thinking about people in everything. Do to others what you would have them do to you. And of course, Jesus knows that we struggle massively with that, I, I was thinking about this myself. I think my rule of thumb is, I want you to treat me how I want you to treat me, and I will treat you how I want to treat you. 
I think we can easily, with our hearts and our self-centeredness, we can easily turn this one round and say, well, that's all right for everybody else, but for me, as long as I'm at the center and I'm happy, then things are fine. But Jesus has given us this section of scripture in Matthew chapter 7, and it is packed full of good, helpful, practical advice as to how we are to treat others, how we are to love them and respect and honor people. It, in fact, talks about the kind of relationships that God wants us to have. It's not just a nice idea. He's saying, in my kingdom, this is what relationships should look like. And in verse 1 to 6, he's talking about these kind of relationships he wants us to have, how we're to get them, how do we, how do we transform our hearts so that we can have these kind of relationships. And in verse to, um, verses 7 through to 11, which we're going to look at next week, he's talking about prayer as the answer to how you get those kind of relationships. If you want the kind of relationships in verses 1 to 6, then you need to pray like 7 to 11. But that's for next week. And so, in verses 1 to 6, there's a number of things that we're going to see as we move through. The kind of friendships Jesus wants you to have. The kind of heart you need to have to be able to get those relationships. And then, finally... How to get that kind of heart. Let's start at verse 1. Do not judge. Anybody could be sat in this room, I reckon, right now, from, our, from the streets of Swindon. Anybody could come in, person of faith, follower of Jesus, whoever or not, totally disinterested in faith, Jesus, Christianity, they could be sat here and they say, this is profound teaching. This is great teaching, and we applaud that Jesus would say that. Do not judge. Yep, we love that. That's fantastic. We think this is high and noble teaching. We think this sums up what we think is right. So, Jesus, we think you're right because this suits us. This is music to our culture's ears, isn't it? Do not judge. In an age of everything's relative, there's there's no super truth. There's no absolute truth. Don't judge. Be accepting of everybody. This really is music to our ears, to our culture's ears. But also we see right away that there's a contradiction because in verse 1, Jesus says, do not judge. But then he goes around and starts calling people dogs and pigs in verse 6. So what is it, Jesus? Well, let's get to work. Sometimes when we come to words like this, judge, and Jesus saying, do not judge, we need to understand what the breadth of that word is. It's really important because we come with our own preconceived ideas of what that could mean what the word judge means. And so dictionaries, when you read a dictionary, I don't know if you've ever read the dictionary, it's really helpful in that it explains every word as it goes along, but it's a bit of a rubbish storyline. Anyway, when you read the dictionary, it always has multiple meanings for any given word, doesn't it? It's, it does. Simple. Don't waste time on that. And so the word judge also has a, a, what's called a semantic range or a lexical range, a, a range of meaning, multiple meanings. And the different kind of meaning... The way you use judge in different settings depends on what you're trying to achieve with it. So you can get a meaning from the word judge that means to evaluate or to discern. So that journey that I took last week took so much longer than I thought it would. I thought it would take one hour and it ended up taking four. And so I evaluated the journey. Or, right now, little plug, fusion, end of May, bank holiday weekend. If you haven't signed up, Please sign up. But I realize there's a lot of evaluating going on in people who haven't signed up yet. Is it worth it? That journey takes four hours. What if it ends up taking eight hours? Will it be worth it? Is it going to be worth the cost? Is it worth, is it worth the camping? I hate camp. I'm not saying I... Whatever. Anyway. And we make all kinds of evaluating and discerning judgments. Is that what Jesus is for, forbidding? That we evaluate things. Some things are better. Some things are worse. Some things are right. Some things are wrong. Some things are good. Some things are bad. No, that's, that's not what he's meaning. But that's what, as I said, our culture takes judge, judging to mean, even evaluating. Don't you dare evaluate my life. Don't you dare discern my life. It's interesting, isn't it, that with our culture, you can never negatively tell people that their behaviors or beliefs are wrong. Because at the moment you tell somebody that their behaviors or beliefs are wrong, you're judging that behavior negatively. But the crazy thing is, the moment that culture points out that you're 
negatively judging someone's behaviour and beliefs. They're judging that your behaviours and beliefs are negative and therefore it's a stupid argument. So it's actually not even a philosophy that you can build your life on. It just doesn't work. And isn't it true that all of us, this is something that gets all of us, isn't it? You walk into a room, you meet somebody for the first time. You don't need any psychologist, any expert to tell you this. You just immediately form opinions about somebody. The moment you walk in, the moment you greet somebody, even before you've said hello, you, even subconsciously you scan them head to toe. I, I've talked to Emma about this before, and for men and women it looks different. I'm just going to focus on the women for a minute because it's come to my mind, and I think it's funny. And so oftentimes, if I'm right, don't stone me, but I understand that women kind of do a, a scan up and a scan down. Oh, what are you wearing? I'm moving on, flipping quick. This is dangerous. <laughs> There is another range of meaning or another essence of meaning which means to criticize and form an opinion. So before you've met somebody or when you've met somebody or you know something's going on about somebody, you form an opinion. You criticize them. So we, our culture, our culture's weird on this, isn't it? It's kind of got two things going on at once. Do not judge. Tolerate everybody. How dare you say what's right and wrong? And then at the same time, it feeds itself on TV, like Strictly Come Dancing. Great British Bake Off. They're the only two I watch. I can't stand those shows. Um, Don't stone me for that either. But full of judges. Judging, performance, baking, how good it tastes, how good it looks, what you did right, what you did wrong, where you could improve, why you're such a loser at this. And our culture feeds itself on this kind of TV and this way of thinking because we actually find it quite fun if we're being honest. We actually get a kick out of judging one another. We're actually wired that way, by the way. I don't know if you've um, just seen recently Jordan Peterson, um, Canadian philosopher guy, um, psychologist, sorry. He's He's just released a book called 12 Rules for Living. And it's fascinating and but he was on, just on Channel 4 recently with Kathy Newman, and he was talking about his book, and it's a great debate. Look it up on YouTube. And, um, and, he, and he compares, in the first chapter of this book, he talks about lobsters and how lobsters grow in this pecking order and how we actually are wired a lot like lobsters in that they run on serotonin, and, and we too run on serotonin, and this, this serotonin is released when we get to the top of the pecking order. We have more serotonin release, which actually means we do better in life from a psychological point of view. And he's saying the big alpha male lobsters, they get serotonin released often. And so they do well in life. And so too the women who kind of lobster look up and down kind of thing, they get more serotonin released, which means that they do better in life. And the people who have less, or lobsters are not people, the lobsters that have less serotonin released struggle in life. They're smaller, they're, they're less able with the resource they have to live an effective life. He says, actually, we are wired exactly the same, psychologists would say. And isn't the human heart like that? There's a, there's a ladder that none of us really like to talk about, a ladder of popularity. This ladder that says, if you are at number one position in life, you have the money, the looks, the power, the, the nice car, the nice house, the nice wife, the nice clothes, the nice this, that, the other, you are up here. And actually... By all accounts, scientists and psychologists say, if you are perceived to be that in society, more serotonin is released. And so actually with the money, with the looks, you actually do better with it than somebody who doesn't have so much money down here in our society's ladder. They struggle to use that money as effectively as somebody who has more power, prestige up here. It's fascinating um, reading. Anyway, in this, in this interview with Kathy Newman, Jordan Peterson he was, he was talking about how we as humans, we basically like lobsters. We try and pull other lobsters down so that we can climb up the ladder. And we spend our lives and our energy both consciously and subconsciously evaluating everyone around us. Well, where am I on this ladder? Oh, they seem to be a bit ahead of me. I'm going to pull them down. I'm going to do it by criticizing them. Maybe even to their face. Maybe behind their back. And we do that in order to make ourselves feel better. That's the way that the world operates. We are broken. We try and make ourselves feel better. And we do that often by tearing others down. We climb up on their heads. We're actually not that different from lobsters. We want the best spots for mating and feeding. But for us, it's a bit less, it's a bit more, you know, clever with it. 
Do you know the gospel sets us free from that way of living? Jesus comes and he sets us free from lobster-like living where you have to claw and tear other people down. He comes and he says, in my kingdom, that's not how it works at all. In fact, he says things like this, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Who's great in Jesus' kingdom? Those who go low and serve. He doesn't, get, he doesn't get impressed by the outward appearance, the money, the prestige, the power. We get a kick out of that, don't we? But Jesus says, hold on, think back to Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. For Jesus, his kingdom is a totally upside down kingdom. Let's move on. Another range of meaning for judges to, we've done that one, is to condemn. So a bit like in one sense, a judge sat on a judge's chair in a court, law, um, court of law, passing judgment on somebody. You've committed a crime, therefore I judge that this is the correct punishment, the correct sentence for you in this instance. Or, it's been accused that you've done this, but we have no proof to prove that you're guilty in this. You're free to go, I pronounce you innocent. And we have this kind of judging going on. Pronouncements of guilty and innocent. And in the Old Testament, we're told that God is going to return to judge the earth. He's coming to judge the earth. He's coming to punish, to exclude, to condemn, and even to destroy. That's strong language. And there's that kind of judging. And so when Jesus says, do not judge, he's saying that there's a way you can judge in which one sense you can criticize, you can evaluate or condemn. What's the difference between these ways of judging. What's going on? Because some of these ways of judging actually aren't bad things. In and of themselves, they can be positive things. They can actually be helpful things at times. What's the difference? It's mainly our attitudes. It mainly comes back again in this passage to a question of yours and my hearts. Listen to this in Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Can you hear there how, how Paul is linking judging with despising somebody? Saying that there's a kind of judging that basically tears people down, that looks down on people. That is the kind of judging that Jesus hates. That is the kind of judging that when Jesus says, do not judge, he's talking about. Judging in the body where we look at others and we despise them. We, we don't want to get to know them. We think they're better than we think we're better than they are. Judging that despises and tears people down cuts God to the heart. But there is a kind of judging. There's a kind of discernment and wisdom that comes. There's a kind of judgment we make about friendships at times that's actually good judgment. So we are to be, the scriptures encourage us to be wise about the friends we pick. Because they can influence your life, and if you're not careful, they can lead you away from truth, from Jesus, from a relationship with him. There's a kind of criticism that's actually helpful at points. But not a critical spirit, but a criticism that evaluates somebody's life, and, or your own life, and at times does the painful thing of speaking truth in love. But don't let that be... Don't let that be a banner over your life. Well, I, I shoot from the hip. Whatever I see, I just say it how it is. I'm plain speaking because I speak the truth in love. All that leads to is a punch in the eye. Right. We, Jesus never wants us to judge people in the sense of condemning, punishing, condescending, or simply to get rid of people. I, can I just apologize if you've ever been in Gateway and that's been your experience? It just feels absolutely right to say that. I know that as a family, and that's what we are, by the way, I hope you remember that, as a family of God's people, a local people gathered together in this body here and over in the east and actually across the town as God's family, we are good, aren't we? Families are good at winding one another up. Families are good at hurting each other and judging each other. Families are good at pointing out the bit of sawdust sat in somebody else's eye. And if you have ever been hurt by Gateway, even if we've done it out of genuine, not just, well, me, any of us, I'm saying. But yeah, also for me, if ever you've been hurt by me and, and we've done it out of a genuine love and desire or at times out of ignorance or out of a bad spirit, then please accept my apologies and forgive me, forgive us. 
Forgive us as a team. We are not perfect. We get things wrong all the time. And you know we need to be able to do this well in the body. We need to be able to cross the room to one another, to build one another up, to call one another on in life and godliness. At times, we're going to get things wrong, even if they're right. Does that make sense? So we have to find a balance here. The temptation can lead to cowardice. I I don't say to anybody anything critical. I don't say to anybody anything about my opinion on how they're living right now. Because that's judgmental. It's intolerant. And that's the spirit of the age. Or I'm going to tell everybody what I think. Just let it all out. And that doesn't build a loving community. That builds attrition and aggression amongst people. In Proverbs 27, verse 6, we're told this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So there is a loving one another that at times is painful and costly. As we judge in the way that Jesus calls us to, we must do it with humility, respect, and a desire to maintain and build and strengthen relationship. So Jesus gives us an example of what this looks like. He gives us this fantastic metaphor in verses 3 to 5. Let's read it. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. That means a hypocrite is somebody who, who wears a mask over their face. First take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So what's this getting at? When you have a speck in your eye, if you've ever had a bit of dirt or anything, it feels awful. Simple. Your eye's painful. It's watering. You can't see. It's streaming. And it's all you think about. Quick story. Many years ago, shortly after Emma and I were first married, we, we always wanted to adopt. It's in our hearts that one day we want to adopt. And we thought in our naivety as young 20-somethings, not that 20, if you're here, you can be very wise, but we weren't. Anyway, and we thought, we just had Sam, we just had Jude. We know how to do this. Let's start the adoption process. And so we, we, we phoned up whoever it was, the council or an adoption service, and said, can you just come and talk to us about what adoption looks like? Anyway, long story short, the meeting came round at our home. I had just been at work that day. Emma's friend from, um, our friend from college, was suddenly coming back from traveling New Zealand and had that real kind of hippie traveler look to her. We were there at home. Oh, no, Emma was at home with the kids waiting for this lady to come. Of course, we're having adopting services come around, so we made the house look nice and tidy, like we can cope in life. And... And this lady walked through the door. I wasn't there at that point. I was late home. And everything was going fine. Then I walked through the door a little bit later. And I'd been at work using a pillar drill. And I got some metal swarf, whatever it's called, in my eye from this pillar drill. Because I hadn't worn goggles, stupidly. And this was agony. Some of the worst pain I could imagine was going on in my eye. And I walked into the home. I got dropped home because I couldn't see at all. My eye was throbbing. It felt like 10,000 cats were scratching my eyes. It was watering and streaming. It was red. I could barely even open it. It had gone puffy. And I walk in, and there's this adoption services lady there. And she looks at me, and I said, hi, I'm Colin. I can't see properly, or something like that. And it turns out that this young lady that was doing our adoption service, it was the first time she'd ever done one of these meetings. And so the house is all nice, and then in walks the dad, the, the, the dad-to-be, and he's got this eye that's streaming. And I'm like, don't mind me. And then all of a sudden, Emma's friend that I just mentioned knocks on the door, turns up out of the blue, and kind of, hi, Emma, how are you doing? And had this real hippie-esque um, vibe going on. And this poor woman that came to, the, to look at us as a family, to assess us for adoption, I'm sure she put a black mark by our name. Do not ever let them adopt. I'm sure that's what our file says. But my eye, the point of the story was, my eye was agony. It was all I could think about was get this speck out of my eye. It was excruciating. It doesn't matter what else was happening. I was not interested really in trying to be polite. I was not interested in trying to put on a good show so that maybe one day we could adopt a child. 
I was just thinking about my eye. It was awful. And you see, this is what Jesus is getting at with this amazing story. He says, when you have a sin, a besetting sin in your soul, you are unable to help others. When you've got a speck in your eye, forget adopting kids at that moment. When you've got a sin that that you are stuck in, walking in, Jesus says you, you actually can't help others in that moment. You're actually useless to help. When you have something lodged, a hurt, a pain, a fear, lodged in your soul, it destroys your ability to see clearly. So maybe you've been in a relationship that failed horribly. And the danger of that is, one, just going through the pain and emotion of it. But do you know what can happen in those moments? The pain and the hurt, the bitterness, the anger, the fear can lodge itself in your soul like a speck in your eye. And it can cause you to walk on through life in such a way that you never trust a man again. You never trust a woman again. I'm never going to get married ever again. And it affects the way that you see maybe everybody, maybe men, maybe women. And this is what can go on in the human heart. What do we need in those moments? What do we need? Well, we need somebody to help us. We need somebody who can come and take that splinter out. And so in my story, I ended up going to Carfax Street late at night. I tried to put on a good show. It was about 11 or 12 at night. And I walked into Carfax Street. It was an awful moment. And I saw this nurse. And she used this UV light on my eye to look if it had scratched my eye and everything. And she said, I can see it, but it looks like it's stuck to your eyeball. And and I was hoping I'd have surgery because it was so horrible. I'm like, there's no way you're touching my eye. And she said, I can get it, but you've got to trust me. She said, I'm going to use a... So what you don't want in that moment of saying somebody to come and help you is somebody that comes along with a pair of flipping pliers and goes, it doesn't matter, just stay still now, grab it out. If that person comes along and they say, I can help you, run, okay? But she said, it's fine, I can help you. I just use a, whatever they call cotton bud. And if you just trust me and open your eye and stay still, I'll be able to get it out. Except she did trick me. She did this countdown, three, two, one, and she got it out on two because she said she... She knew I'd move at one, but she got it out. And you know, the relief was almost instantaneous. Almost instantly, my eye felt better. It was remarkable. When we have sins lodged in our life, pain lodged in our soul, do you know we actually need somebody who comes alongside? We actually need somebody who cares. Jesus is right in that. Sure, sometimes those things, you can blink it out. You can rub it out. You can get a bit of tissue and just carefully get it out yourself. Sometimes that's true. Other times, we, excuse me, we need people to come and help. We need people who tell us the truth. We need people who, out of love and wanting to build us up and strengthen us, say, can I just talk to you about that for a moment? That's a good thing. It can be a flipping painful thing. But it's a good thing. You remember when King David um, had his fling? And then he had um, Bathsheba. Was it Bathsheba? Yeah. Thanks. He had her husband killed out on the battlefield to get rid of the problem. And you'll remember that the prophet Nathan, I should have read this, but it's just come from my head. The prophet Nathan came to him and told him this story. He knew about this. God had revealed what had gone on to him, and he knew about this situation. And so he came to him, and rather than just saying, David, you're a sinner, you've slept with another man's wife, and you've got the guy killed just to try and cover up your own tracks, he actually told him a story. He told him a story about a guy who mistreated another man, and, and David's emotional energy at that point is all pent up and he goes, this is outrageous. That man should be judged. He should be dealt with at the severity of his sin. And Nathan turns around to him and says, David, that man is you. And skillfully and caringly, he exposes the sin lodged in David's heart. The sin, maybe David did knew this one. Maybe it was causing him hurt. That's why he got the guy killed, to try and cover up, to try and make it better. But we need at points a Nathan-like person who comes with great care and skill and tenderness, says, can I just talk to you? 
I've just been observing this, and I feel like it's causing you to trip and stumble at the moment. I don't know about you. I want friends that can do that to me. I want friends that can speak truth in love. Boy, do we need that. So how do you get the speck out of somebody's eye very carefully? In Galatians 6, Paul writes this, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, talking about the church, those who are tracking with Jesus, life in the spirit, should restore him gently. What great wisdom. In verse 4, Jesus pushes this metaphor a bit further. He says, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when all the time you have this plank like this? This is the prop. It wasn't to hit your kids. I was thinking it could be a good new kid thing, but um, it's not that. Not yet. And he's saying, if you've got this thing sticking out of your eye, you are no good to anybody. Yet so often we think we're really good to everybody. And this can be part of the problem. Imagine somebody, that, that nurse, coming to me and she says, I can get that splinter out of your eye, it's no problem, you've just got to trust me. And she walks in with a massive plank sticking out of her eye. I'll give you an illustration of judgment. that was close. I'll give you an illustration of what judgment looks like. In my naivety, please forgive me, nurses, I thought it should be a doctor that took that splinter out. Because they'd be much better, because they're, they're more educated and more... Debs, don't... I feel it right now. <laughs> but that's what judging's like, isn't it? We make these kind of evaluations all the time. She got it out, my eye was fine. She was brilliant at it. I repented. Anyway... What's Jesus talking about? Somebody, you can't take a speck of sawdust out of somebody's eye until you've got that plank out of your own eye. What's he talking about? Well, two things. He's talking about the kind of person who is far more aware of other people's flaws and weaknesses than their own. I don't know if you know that kind of person, but they are annoying. They're the kind of person that doesn't have any friends. It's true. Who wants to be a kind of... Who wants to be friends with the kind of person who just goes around going, do you see them? Can I just tell you this about you? Hey, I'm invincible, but you, if you were like me, you'd be perfect. If you were like me, you'd have life together. They see everyone else's fault, yet they're blind to their own sin. Do you see, in the church, this should not be present. Because part of receiving the gospel of Jesus is we realize that all of us are walking around with sticks of every kind, poking out not just from our eyes, but every part of our body. We are broken. We have this going on in every area of our life. We're broken. We can't see clearly. We think we're together. We think the way that we live, the things we chase after, the things we desire and long for, the things we build our life around are all perfect. But the gospel says, no, it all counts for nothing before Jesus. And he is the master Nurse who comes along and removes the speck from your eye, skillfully, carefully, without crushing. And the gospel invites us to walk free from this kind of judging, which is why the community of God's people should be the most loving, caring, hospitable, welcoming community to everyone. Not just people like you and like me, but people who are vastly different from you should be welcomed and loved in this community I, I dread to think what happens sometimes as people walk through those doors and people go, I'm not welcome here because of X, Y, and Z. That is not acceptable in the family of God. Everyone is welcome through those doors. Literally everyone. And if you don't like it as a follower of Jesus, got good news for you. Go to work on your heart. Maybe God even brought them through the door so that your plank in your own eye could get dislodged. So it can be that Jesus is talking about this plank of people who are blind to their own sin. Or the metaphor can mean this. If you have a speck in your own eye, it should feel like you've got a plank to you. So when I had that speck in my eye, it felt like it could have been a hundred planks. And it was everything in my life at that moment was focused on that tiny speck of metal. But when you have a plank in your eye... Or even if you've got a speck in your own eye, sorry, it should feel like you've got a plank in your eye. 
When you've got sin in your own life, forget anybody else's for the moment. That's not your problem. When you've got sin in your own eye, it should feel like not just you've got a tiny speck, oh, I can get on with it. It should feel like your whole life at that moment is, gosh, look at this. I'm broken over it. I'm humbled over it. I need help to remove it. My friend, would you come and help me? Would you come and help me remove this sin from my life? Confess your sins to one another, and he is gracious and will forgive you and is able to set you free. Hey, we need people that we can go to in life and say, I'm just struggling in this area at the moment. I've got this, I've got this speck in my own life, and I don't want it to be like a look. So why, do we not, why is it so easy to see specks in other people's eyes and not the log, the plank in our own eye? Do you know, quite simply, we have broken hearts. We have broken hearts. And this is why Jesus is talking about this in this passage. He's saying, the kind of relationships I want in my kingdom are relationships that get fueled through new, mended hearts. Hearts like mine. Hearts that beat for God. Hearts that love God and love your neighbor. And that's what he calls us to here. And so if you want to deal with the plank in your own eye, you've got to be humbled over your sin. You've got to be broken over it. You've got to say, God, this, this area in my life, I, I'm struggling to walk free, but thanks be to God who leads us into victory over these things. Hey, my friend, I've got this area of life. Can I tell you and trust that you'll help me walk free from this sin? Do you know when you do that well, and then you can be amazing help to others? Helping them walk free. Helping them walk in Jesus. Helping them get rid of specks in their own eyes. Jesus isn't saying don't get rid of specks in people's eyes. He wants us to do that in love. But first start with your own heart. wonder if we have a community like that. I wonder if that's what people, when they walk through the doors, encounter. When you invite them to your home. When there's an area in somebody's life and... You want to help them, how you treat them and speak to them in those moments. If you're sat there and thinking, do you know what? If everybody else was like me on this, then we would have that kind of culture. Good news. The answer is no, you don't. You've got a massive plank in your eye. Let me help you. Right. Here's the challenge. Culturally, and with our attitudes, our temperament, should I say, we are wired in a way that leads us away from this kind of living. So culturally, some kind of cultures are honor-shame cultures. And at times, to speak the truth brings dishonor onto somebody. In an honor-shame culture, keeping face is really important. I'm not saying it's a wrong culture. Please hear my heart on this. But in that kind of culture, oftentimes, keeping face is really important. And so it can often, the weakness of that can be, that you don't tell the truth because it's all about keeping face. Not always, please hear my heart. So my quick story on this is when I was in Dubai just recently, we were going out for lunch um, one day. We just ended up in an area of Dubai, the old part of Dubai, where there was no um, restaurants anywhere. And so I asked a local and I said, could you point me in the direction of some hotel, oh, sorry, of some um, restaurants? And he said, sure, just go straight down there, turn right, go on a bit and you'll find some. So we walked straight down there, turned right, and didn't find any. And then when we got straight down there, turned right, and didn't find any, we we asked somebody else. And this guy went, yep, sure. What you want to do is go back where you came from. At this moment, I had a a lack of cultural awareness to realize what's going on. And Donna said to me, Colin, I think what's happening here is that people don't feel they can tell you, they can't tell you what you want to know because it's about keeping honor. It's about not bringing shame. You've asked for something. I want to do everything I can to help you, even if it's make-up directions to a restaurant. It's not wrong. It's just a cultural difference. It was hugely entertaining. And then about five minutes later, the guy who rode past us on his bike, have you found him yet? <laughs> it was brilliant. In, if you're brought up in a Western culture, i.e. here, then the cultural context can be like this. Don't you dare criticize anybody. Because that's hatred. That's hateful. Tolerate everybody. Speaking love in that kind of culture generates hate and animosity. So one culture says, love, love, but don't give us truth. And that can lead to liberalism. 
Another kind of culture says, give us truth, give us truth, but no love. And that can lead to a legalistic kind of culture. Do you know in a church, either can be present. It actually can. We can have one of those kind of cultures present. Where, hey, anything goes here. I don't speak truth to you in love. I don't challenge you. Because that would be horrible. But God calls us to do that. Lovingly. Or you can have a church culture where it's all about truth. And I'm going to tell you when you've got it wrong. I'm going to tell you when you've stepped off the, the narrow path. I'm going to let you know immediately that you've done something wrong. And that kind of legalistic crushing culture can be so prevalent. Temperaments. You get some people who are don't rock the boat kind of people. Better not say anything to anybody about anything in case I upset them. Some of us are prone to living that way. I want to encourage you, if that's you, to not be, please hear my heart in this, but not, to not have a coward spirit when it comes to loving people, oftentimes when there's hard things to say. Other people are gobby, loudmouth kind of people. I tell you what I think, no holds barred. You ask me, you get it, both barrels. Can I just say to you, tone it down? Right. People get annoyed. So where do we get this heart, finally? Where do we get this kind of heart that, that, that doesn't judge people based on outward appearance, that doesn't judge people to tear them down, to make yourself look better and bigger like you're up this ladder and they're lower than you just so you get a momentary serotonin kick? How do we get this kind of heart? Well, Jesus tells us a parable. Verse 6. Do not give to the dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. He tells us his parable, and it can suddenly sound very disconnected. But in Jesus, remember, he's just been talking about our hearts when we're speaking to other people, when, we're, when we are evaluating, when we are making opinions, when we are speaking truth to people, he's saying, watch your heart, guard your heart, have the right kind of motive to build up and strengthen. And actually, he's going on talking about the same thing. He's saying this, do not give to dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearl to the pigs. What is a pearl? In Matthew 13, just a few chapters on, we, we hear about a pearl again. And Jesus talks about a rich guy who, who's walking the fields one day and he finds a pearl of great price. And he discovers this pearl and on discovering it, he thinks, this is so precious. This is so worth something. I'm going to go and give, sell everything I've got so that I can go and get this one thing. And he gives up everything to get this pearl of great price. What's the pearl? It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news, the gospel that, that Jesus is king and that this king has given his life to save any and everyone who will come and humble themselves over their sin and brokenness before him so that he can give them new life, new hope, a new future, a new purpose. And a guy called Dallas Willard, he wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. If you haven't read it, I'd love to encourage you. He's actually looking at this Sermon on the Mount. It's a great book. And he says this, that it has bugged him for years that when people read this verse, they believe it's talking about certain kinds of people who are so bad and so unworthy that they are not worthy of hearing about the truth. Do you know, for years I've thought this about this verse. Because pigs and dogs, in Jewish context, in the Jewish mindset, remember, we're thinking, what did it mean to them, first of all? Jewish pigs and dogs were kind of outcasts the pigs were the gentiles the pigs were unclean the pigs were nothing to do with the people of god and so they didn't have the truth the the jewish israel um, nation of israel they had the truth but the pigs didn't they were unclean the dogs the dogs were just uh, pets or just wild and you didn't treat them with respect and dallas willard says this if this is what jesus is saying then he is the biggest living contradiction you've ever seen because Jesus Christ did exactly what verse 6 looks like. What people are saying you shouldn't do. In Colossians 2.3 he says, Jesus Christ is the one in whom all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hidden. Jesus Christ was the greatest treasure of the Father. He was offered to us. He was given to us. And we turned on him and trampled him into the dust. 
when you throw things to the pigs and dogs, you're feeding them. So in this parable, we're seeing somebody feeding their pigs and their dogs, but their owner is not doing a good job. Their owner is making a mess of this. If they try to eat these pearls, they'll get choked or hurt. And what happens in that moment? Jesus says the animals turn on you because at least they can eat you. You see, the pig deals with the gospel like this. It looks at it and says, is this going to satisfy me? For a pig, its stomach is its God. Does it feed me? Does it fill me up? Does it satisfy me? Will it, will it nourish what I want from life? Will it nourish my appetites? You see, if Jesus is not the ultimate beauty in your life, if he is not your treasure, your pearl that is worth giving up everything for, then you are a person who the Bible tells us you're driven by your flesh, by your carnal instincts, by your own desires. You're driven by people's approval on this ladder. You're driven to get success. You can't let people mistreat you without getting them back. Because otherwise you have nothing. These things are like the pearls to you. They're the things that are precious. They shape your life. But the man in Matthew 13 deals with the pearl like this. He looks at it and he sees it as precious. He sees it as worth giving up everything for. To get this one precious pearl. Some people, when they hear the gospel, they don't see what good it is for them. There's no good news in it for them. They're blind to it. It's an issue of having revelation. It's not just you hear it. We need revelation of the truth. But they're blind to it. This doesn't nourish me. This doesn't feed my appetites. Other people, when they hear and receive the gospel, they see the wondrous beauty of it. That God would so love them that he would give his pearl, his treasured son, even to death on a cross for them. And they are cut to the heart over sin. Just practically, what does this mean? It means there's times when we share truth with one another in this body. And we do it out of love. And there's times when we share truth with people who don't know Jesus. And do you know how we do that? With love and tenderness. You've been entrusted this precious gift called the gospel, Christian. Your job is not to ram it down somebody's throat. But to walk at the pace of what God is doing in somebody else's life. Your, God is, your, your job is not to make them like you. Not like you, but to be like you. Please don't think, I've got the gospel. If you were like me, you would be okay. Think, no, I am a broken person who has discovered this great pearl... And my sin has broken me, but thanks be to God that he's given a savior who rescues me for myself and invites me into relationship. Hey, you person far from Christ, you need him. You need him. Let me help you on your journey. Honor the pace of God in people's lives. Listen to the spirit. Everybody is on their own journey of faith and we need to accept that. We could try and force it in people's lives. We could try and say, You're just not hearing. I've got this great pearl. If only you would see what I would see. If only you would hear what I would hear. If only you came to church like me and went to small group like me and gave your money like me, then you'd be okay. It's no wonder at times that people hate Christians. Hey, the gospel's already difficult enough. We're already despised enough for the gospel. Let's not make sure we're despised because we share with anger and frustration. Let's be those who share this pearl of great price with tenderness So the only way, if you'd like to stand, we're going to finish and break bread together. The only way that you will ever be somebody who speaks the truth in love, whether to your neighbor, whether to your neighbor, whether to your friend here, whether to your brother or sister here, or whether to somebody who is far from God, The only way you will ever become somebody who speaks the truth in love is when you are broken over your own sin. When you see the preciousness of Jesus and what he did, that he was thrown to the pigs and dogs. And that we turned and attacked him. Just listen to this. When Jesus was on the cross, 
as he was dying. What did he do? He quoted Psalm 22. Because it starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you know Jesus, you know that he was thinking of the whole psalm. In the middle of Psalm 13, it says, bulls surround me, roaring lions surround me. They open their mouths against me to tear their prey. Jesus Christ himself was cast to us, the pigs and dogs. The people who had no idea what was coming, and we tore him. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you that you're a God of amazing compassion. I thank you that your word is not just a series of morals that we have to try and attain to, but it's an invitation to new life, new hearts, new hopes, new loves, new purpose, new destiny. And I pray that right now you would come and expand our hearts, hearts full of love and grace, hearts full of joy and thankfulness. We thank you that your word is living and powerful, that it's useful for training and rebuking, for building up and tearing down lies. And I pray that here at Gateway we would be a a family of men and women who have soft hearts who are grieved over our own sins so much more than anybody else's so that we can serve and love one another. I pray that with this pearl of great price, this this good news about Jesus and his kingdom, his kingdom come and is coming and will come, I pray that we will be those who, who are so enamored with him, so excited about this amazing message of hope that we've been entrusted with, that we would so carefully and tenderly find ways to communicate, to walk with people, to point people to you, not to ourselves. Lord, we pray this morning, save us from ourselves, Lord. Save us from ourselves. We pray, Lord, save us from sins that beset our soul. Lord, we thank you in you is freedom and there is hope. We thank you that you have poured out your spirit upon us and we pray, Holy Spirit, come fall afresh on your people this morning. Come encounter us. Come and build us up. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you strengthen us in our weakness. Thank you that tenderly and so kindly you you take us to areas of our lives that aren't lined up with the kingdom. And you say, hey, God wants to bring freedom in this area. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and joy. And so this isn't heavy. This is freedom. This is life-giving. And we just want to pray, come Holy Spirit right now. We pray this for you to be glorified, Lord God. And we pray that we might have lives of joy and freedom and love. Amen.